Good evening, everybody, and good morning to those that will listen in the morning. We'll begin our Dhamma talk evening as usual, chanting the refuges and precepts together. Namo tasa bhagavato arahato sama sambuddhasa. Namo tasa bhagavato arahato sama sambuddhasa. Namo tasa bhagavato arahato sama sambuddhasa. Buddham Saranga Chami, Dhammam Saranga Chami, Sangam Saranga Chami, Dutiampi Buddham Saranga Chami, Dutiampi Dhammam Saranga Chami, Dutiampi Sangam. Saranga Chami Tatiampi Buddham Saranga Chami Tatiampi Dhammam Saranga Chami Tatiampi Sangam Saranga Chami Panatipata Veramni Sikapadam Samadhi Ami Adina Dana Veramani Sikapadam Samadhi Ami Avrakmacharya Veramani Sikapadam Samadhi Ami Musa Vada Veramani Sikapadam Samadhi Ami Sura Meraya Majapamadatana Veramani Sikapadam Samadhi Ami Vikalavojana Veramani Sikapadam Samadhi Ami Nacha Gita Vadita Visukadasana Malaganda Vilepana Dharana Mandana Vipusanatana Veramni Sikapadam Samadhi Ami Uchasayana Mahasayana Veramni Sikapadam Samadhi Ami Idame Silam Magapalanyanasa Pachayo
The title of this evening's talk is Wise Concentration. And beginning uh, the talk this evening with three Pali words, words that in fact, Christina mentioned and spoke some about uh, during her talk last evening, Sila, Samatha, and Panya. Pali words that trans translate into English as virtue or ethical behavior, concentration, and wisdom. Over his 45 years of teaching, the Buddha spoke many, many times about these three particular aspects of mind as being the essential and indispensable basis of his own practice. Virtue, concentration, and wisdom or insight form the three branches of mental development that are essential to all forms and all schools of Buddhist practice. The, develop, the development and the combination of the first two of these qualities or these capacities of heart and mind, virtue and concentration, are what lead one into vipassana, the deeply penetrative understanding that comes about through the direct meditative experience of the three liberating insights, that of anicca, the impermanency of all mental and physical phenomena, dukkha, the essential unsatisfactoriness of all worldly and mental physical occurrences, and anatta, the impersonality of all of the mental and physical phenomena of existence. These are the three profound insights that lead one on to the final liberating wisdom. And as each of you know, concentration plays a really important role in the Buddhist teachings. It's one of the seven factors of awakening, one of the seven factors of enlightenment, those being mindfulness, investigation, effort, energy, joy, tranquility, concentration, and equanimity. It's also one of what are called the five spiritual powers. And those are faith, effort, mindfulness, concentration, and wisdom. The Buddha commented, made this comment at one point, the practice of vipassana, the practice of insight, without the support of samatha, without the support of concentration, is like sending a minister out to negotiate with bandits without having a bodyguard to protect her or him. So it's pretty important, huh? In the Buddha's words, as he quite often did, he starts, uh, he starts with a question, and then he goes on to answer his own question. So here's one of the ways that he did this, or one of the times that he did this. He asked the question, if concentration, samatha, is developed, what profit does it bring? 
And he answers his own question. He says, the mind is developed. Then he asks another question. If the mind is developed, what profit does it bring? And he answers his own question again, saying, all greed is abandoned. Then he asks another question. If insight is developed, what profit does it bring? And he responds to his own question saying, wisdom is developed. And one more question that he asks is, if wisdom is developed, what profit does it bring? And his response to his question is, all ignorance is abandoned. So concentration, samatha, meditation, and vipassana, insight meditation. In particular, alternating sequences are cultivated and developed throughout our practice, throughout all the years of our practice. And as Christina explored with you last evening, all of this, all of it, rests on the essential foundation of the gradual process of purification that comes about through the practice and the understanding that blossoms through our exploration of sila, our exploration of virtue, ethical behavior, with its underlying principle of non-harming. As the teachings and the practices of virtue deepen and as, as they mature within us, we really come to understand more and more clearly through our own very own direct experience, what brings happiness, contentment, and ease on a deeper and more profound level, and what brings suffering and confusion, what brings dis-ease. Ethical behavior, ethical discipline is the basis for developing samatha or developing samadhi in the Sanskrit word being samadhi and samatha being the Pali word. And this refers not only to the achievement of meditative concentration, but it also means the development, the cultivation of exceptional mental health and balance. intimately connected to the understanding that the practices of sila or ethical ethical discipline and, and ethical behavior affords us is the recognition of and seeing our self-identification in relationship to our own long-standing habits of attraction, which show up as greed and clinging and expectation and attachment, and our long-standing habits of aversion, which show up as worry and resistance and anger and fear and confusion and doubt. There's not a one of us that haven't experienced all of that. These habits of mind are what primary, are the primary mental and physical phenomena that create suffering and lead to what we call rebirth over and over and over again, right here, right now, in this momentary 
round of worldly unsatisfactoriness, this momentary round of physical suffering. And the Pali word for that is samsara. These habits of mind are also what keep us from developing a deep and further purifying concentration itself. And these habits of mind keep us from our main goal, that of recognizing the true nature of things, recognizing ultimate reality, consequently keeping us from awakening, keeping us from the liberation of the heart and mind. The true nature of things, ultimate reality, is rooted in the principle that all mental and all physical phenomena, people, mountains, trees, galaxies, New Mexico, California, Afghanistan, Massachusetts, dogs, thoughts, rain, snow, New York, feelings, one's hair, one's aging body, sunshine, the White House, your favorite restaurant, American Airlines, etc., 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 etc. It's a, a long, long, long list. All of it are understood or regarded as being without substantial sustaining essence, meaning as being without any separate, solid, sustaining, graspable self-identity. It all exists in some way, in a totally interconnected way. No solidity, no solidly sustaining graspable self-identity. Kind of hard to get one's mind around that, but that's how it is. <laughs> In order to see the, the true nature of existing phenomena, we need to purify the mental cloudiness. We need to part the veil. We need to untangle the tangle that keeps us from seeing it. And this occurs via the practices of sila, samatha, and panya, all of which are deeply rooted in mindfulness. The Buddha, in speaking with one of his chief disciples, Ananda, and this comes from the Kimata Sutta in the Anguttara Nikaya, Ananda asks the Buddha a question. And the Buddha, of course, responds to Ananda's question. I will share this dialogue between the two of them, which is the one that one of the things that Christina offered to you all last evening. This, this translation that I will be offering you is just slightly different from the translation of this teaching that uh, Christina offered you last evening. Ananda says, what's the, per oh, and the reason I, I was going to cut it out of my talk, because she said it, she offered it last night, and I asked her, well, I might cut it out. She said, oh, no, no, they can't ever hear that too much. So you get to hear it again. <laughs> Thank you, Christina. 
what is the purpose of skillful virtues? What is their reward? Says Ananda. And the Buddha responds. Skillful virtues have freedom from remorse as their purpose, Ananda. And freedom from remorse is their reward. Freedom from remorse has joy as its purpose, joy as its reward. Joy has rapture as its purpose, the Buddha goes on, rapture as its reward. Rapture has serenity as its purpose, serenity as its reward. And the Buddha continues, serenity has pleasure as its purpose, pleasure as its reward. Pleasure has concentration as its purpose, concentration as its reward. Concentration has knowledge and vision of things as they actually are as its purpose. Knowledge and vision of things as they actually are as its reward. And then the Buddha says, in this way, Ananda, skillful virtues lead step by step to the consummation of our hunship, or in English, to the consummation of freedom from suffering, to the consummation of liberation of the heart and mind. And in speaking to his monks and nuns directly about his own process and his own experience, the Buddha said, it's owing to the development of virtue, concentration, and wisdom that enlightenment has been fully realized. In order for us to learn how to properly apply these three active forces of purification, virtue, concentration, and wisdom, just as the Buddha did, we also need to learn directly from our own experience and often from some of our most difficult experiences and sometimes also from what we deem to be our mistakes as well as learning from our quieter and pleasant, beautiful and subtler experiences. That kind of, that kind of uh, includes everything, doesn't it? All of our experience, that's what we learn from. We could say that, that purification of the mind and heart is synonymous with this act of learning. So this evening, taking a look at this active force of samatha, this active force of concentration, the unperturbed, peaceful, and lucid state of mind attained by the practice and the process of strong mental concentration. The process of gathering in and gathering together the energy, the potentially powerful energy of concentration is that it's often really, if you are really, if we're really honest with ourselves, it's often quite dispersed. So gathering this all in, this potentially powerful energy of the mind, we could say that the initial act of concentration is that of reining the mind in from all of its myriad distractions, 
and learning how to focus it by coming back again and again and again to the very simple present so that our mental and our physical energy isn't being used up or usurped in unconscious and unskillful ways. The notion of developing the mind lies at the heart of all, all Buddhist traditions. And one really important aspect of this development has to do with strengthening one's ability to focus, strengthening one's ability to stabilize, to direct the mind, rather than allowing it to be carried off over and over and over again by whatever breezes waft in and upon it from any of the sense doors or from our own unconscious. So in light of this, we can ask ourselves a question. Does your mind control you? Or do you control your mind? An interesting question. So for instance, if your intention is to keep your attention on the breath, but the mind wanders off at the slightest provocation, then your ability to focus the mind isn't yet very well developed. One of the really wonderful things that practice offers us is that Remaining focused on a chosen object is a skill that can be learned. Like any other skill, it can be learned by practice, by very patient repetition, and by gradual development. So that's what we're doing these days in this retreat. The Vasudhimaga, which is the very profoundly detailed Buddhist treatise on the process of purification, uses a, a number of very graphic metaphors to describe the process of this development and the act of concentration. And one of these metaphors that I particularly relate to because of my own uh, experience in creating pottery on a potter's wheel is this. This comes from the Visuddhi Maga. A lump of clay sits on a spinning potter's wheel. Centering the clay, the potter brings both hands directly onto the clay, holding, staying there with a strong, relaxed, focused attention of mind and body, staying, sustaining attention and energy, totally undistracted as the clay is centered on the wheel. Then the potter with a continued focus of clear, connected and relaxed attention with one hand directly on the clay, steadily holding and and supporting the clay. The other hand also continuing to sustain contact with the clay, which continues to be the object of attention. The other hand is moving back and forth, up and down informing the clay at the same time as being 
informed by it. So really quite a graphic and visceral metaphor. Some of you have maybe tried to, or maybe have learned and are skilled at working on a potter's wheel. Quite a graphic and visceral metaphor for the development and process of concentration. With the heart, the mind, learning to move in a, a focused experience of deepening concentration. The power of a clear, relaxed, and focused mind, a concentrated mind, brings together and re-stimulates itself again and again and again. Re-stimulates the energy and the effort needed for the next moment of continuing the process of its own development. So we could say that a concentrated mind feeds itself strengthening its ability to stay present with the object of attention and not attach itself to other things. It's just where it is, pure, clear, and calm. Really quite an energizing, refreshing, and potentially beautiful experience. Because our exploration this evening is primarily devoted to the purifying and beautiful current of samatha concentration, I, I think it would be helpful uh, for us to explore and learn a bit more about the basis, the process, and the fruits of concentration. And some words from B. Allen Wallace, who is a, a Tibetan teacher, Tibetan Buddhist teacher. Like a telescope launched, launched into orbit beyond the distortions of the Earth's atmosphere, Samatha meditation provides a platform for exploring the deep space of the mind. The wholesome states of concentration, calm, joy, Tranquility, happiness, contentment, peace, and a growing equanimity, along with the deeper states of concentration called jhana. None of this can grow when the whole unwholesome states of mind, of attachment, aversion, sleepiness, agitation, worry, and doubt are occurring. Seeing and understanding the difference between wholesome states of mind and unwholesome states of mind is essential for the development and the blossoming of concentration and its attendant wholesome states. So for instance, if you try to concentrate on a meditation subject such as the sensations of the in and the out breath in the nostril or upper lip area, the anapanaspad, and you're anxious, or maybe you're worried, or maybe you're 
practicing filled with all kinds of expectation during the process. Calm and joy will then actually be prevented from arising. Why? Why is that? Well, pretty obvious. Worry and expectation enslave us. Every time they come up and we take them in, they enslave us. We need to recognize it when they show up and don't become their slave. (laughs) Not easily said, not so easily done. With the practice of concentration, one needs to be, as I've already mentioned in the instructions, one needs to be willing to let go of thought meaning not be seduced by thoughts. I once said to uh, some students in a retreat I was teaching, thought is our most seductive experience. I got an argument back. No, it's not. No, it's not. Sex is. I said, no, it's thought. Take a look. I still say it's thought is our most seductive experience. So we need to be willing to let it go, not be seduced by it. Be willing to, in a sense, cut through thought. Even thoughts that seem so important in the moment. And it's very important to note here that it isn't about kicking out thoughts. Kicking out or booting out thought is rooted in an attitude of aversion to thought. What's meant here is rooted in a clarity of intention and seeing and knowing when one's attention gets muddled or lost in something other than what is being intended. And this is really the first and I think the most important and for many people the most difficult step of the practice of developing concentration. And as each one of us know, well, the mind can get lost over and over again, in fact, in myriad mundane and seeming, seemingly lofty thoughts and actions, thinking that whatever it is, is really, really important. I had, uh, I had such an experience during a three-month retreat that was uh, devoted to the development of concentration and jhana that I sat with uh, my, one of my teachers, Venerable Paul Aksayadaw, a number, quite a number of years ago. For the first week of this three-month retreat, each day after lunch, I would make myself a fancy cup of tea. And I would take two or three different loose teas and mix them all together into a tea ball for my fancy specialty, an important and seemingly necessary treat that I really needed, certainly that I really wanted, that's for sure. Well, towards the end of that week, I noticed there were a box of tea bags. There was a box of tea bags sitting on the counter that was of one of the same teas that I was putting into my fancy mix. And of course, it had been sitting there all along, but I, the mind hadn't connected with it at all 
uh, with any clear awareness until that very moment. So when I did notice it, the thought came up, do I really need this? Is all this fancy tea preparation and seeming need, is this, is this really important? Well, very quickly, the answer was no. No, it's not important at all. It's merely a habitual distraction. So from that day on, I made a simple cup of tea with the, one of the tea bags that was sitting on the counter and drank it with pleasure. Enjoyed it very much. But what happened after this what was, is what was really important. Quite spontaneously, at times throughout the whole rest of that three-month retreat, the question would come up, is this really important? And it would come up in relationship to various mundane actions and in relationship to various thoughts and various thought patterns. And the answer was almost always, if not pretty much 100% of the time, quite clearly and more and more obviously, no, no, not so important, really not important. And then I would just simply let go of whatever it was at that point. Life became a lot simpler through the rest of that three-month retreat, which allowed me to practice more and more and more deeply. So again, the development of a wholesome concentration requires of us that we have some depth of insight and a growing interest and understanding regarding the difference between wholesome and unwholesome states of mind. And one of the most wonderful and amazing fruits that inevitably occurs through the process of developing concentration and mindfulness is that the mind and heart are continually being purified from the various permutations of greed and aversion and lethargy and restlessness and doubt the experiences that are classically called hindrances in the Buddha's teachings. Classically, the development of concentration, and for some people at some point, jhana, is described as I've mentioned already, and Christina mentioned last night a little bit, is described as the purification of the mind. And again, as the Buddha said, the mind is developed. Samatha, or the development of calm and concentration, really seriously weakens the hindrances, these unwholesome states of mind. But notice I said weakens. It does not delete them. In the moments when Calm, joy, tranquility, blissful happiness, contentment, peace, and a fairly good degree of equanimity, the fruits of our concentration practice, when all of this is clearly manifesting, unwholesome mind states are temporarily completely eliminated. 
as well as considerably weakened in the long run, particularly if one's concentration develops and deepens, and even more specifically, if one's mind inclines towards the attainment of the deeper states of concentration, jhana. So, so now I'd like to take a bit of a look at how the different factors of a growing and deepening concentration quite specifically address states of mind and body that can hinder the development of concentration and also that hinder the blossoming of insight. To begin with, overall calm and the development of a more tranquil body and mind is an antidote for feeling perturbed, obviously. Calm and tranquility free the mind, free the heart from impurities and inner obstacles, giving the mind a much greater penetrative strength. The mental state of initially applying, initially aiming and applying the attention again and again to the object, the word for this as Christina mentioned last night, is vitaka in Pali. And then eventually establishing the attention, establishing the mind on the objects, object, such as the sensations of the in and the out breath at the anapana spot at the touching point. This eventually temporarily eliminates dullness and sleepiness and stiffness. The sustained application of the mind, a continuous sustained attention on the object such as the breath. And the Pali word for this is vichara. This eventually, temporarily, eliminates uncertainty and doubt within the practice. And it weakens these afflictive states to some degree overall. The deeply concentrated and mindful state of joyful zest, bright happiness, elation in the mind, which results is the result from the developing purity of heart and mind. The Pali word for this is piti, P-I-T-I, piti. This brings a really delighted interest in, in and liking for the object of attention, such as the breath. And with the development of a deepening concentration, which results in varying degrees of piti, ill will is temporarily inhibited. With the first and second jhana in a deeply absorbed state of concentration, there's really much delight and liking of the object of attention, which is one aspect of the direct experience of jhana itself. And at that point, it's not the breath, it's the jhana that is the focus of the attention and the, uh, is the object of the delight and liking. At this point, all forms of ill will are completely temporarily inhibited. As we continue with this process of the development of the mind through the practice and the development of concentration, the concentrated state of bliss, contentment, a sweet, 
easeful kind of happiness, the Pali word for this being sukha, with which in its maturity is not a pleasant bodily feeling, but it's a pleasant, contented mental feeling. And when this occurs to varying degrees through deepening concentration, and then much more profoundly in the third jhana, restlessness, agitation, regret, and worry are completely, temporarily eliminated. And lastly, the steady, undistracted attention of the one-pointed focus of the deepening concentration, and the, the Pali word for this is ikagata. With this occurring to varying degrees during the, all the whole developmental stage of concentration and mindfulness, and then happening in a much more profound and sustaining way during absorption in the fourth jhana, this one-pointed focus of attention is the experience of a clear, strong, and pervasive, energetic, centeredness, balance, and equanimity. And during this time, sensuous desire for anything is inhibited, is at bay. It just isn't there. As samatha concentration develops and as it moves along, these states that corrupt the natural purity and luminosity of the heart and mind, when at least some of these imperfections, these afflictive states, which also includes clinging and self-identification to pleasant and other habitual states of mind and body, when at least some of this has been very clearly let go, when it's been temporarily abandoned, temporarily relinquished. At that time, one really truly knows and gains a much fuller and deeper confidence in and connection to one's own practice. And when this confidence arises, the mind and heart often experience great inspiration and enthusiasm and appreciation connected to the Buddha, to the Dhamma, to the Sangha, and to one's own particular teacher, if one has a particular teacher. As awakening beings, when we begin to directly experience and to know ourselves as purified of unwholesome states, when we directly experience and know ourselves as at least partially liberated from them, a great and wholesome gladness and gratitude is born in us. With the blossoming and the maturing of this gladness, a joyful zest and a taste of a wholesome elation, which is sometimes defined as rapture, is born in us. With this joy and the knowing of it, and this part's really important, with this joy and the knowing of it without any attachment 
without any personal identification in those moments, the body and the mind eventually become very tranquil. With the maturing of tranquility, both the more overt and the subtle bodily and mental disturbances that are connected with gladness and joy. And there are bodily and mental disturbances uh, when joy is happening, actually. You may have never have noticed that, but maybe you will come to that if you start getting more tranquil. So <laughs> I'll repeat that. With the maturing of the maturing of tranquility, both the more overt and the subtle bodily and mental disturbances that are connected with gladness and joy, when these are removed, they disappear. They actually disappear with the calm and with the quiet. They disappear with the serene pleasure of tranquility. And when we experience tranquility, we feel pleasure. When pleasure is felt, again, very important, when pleasure is felt without any attachment, without any identification in those moments, the mind is then prepared for deeper concentration. And of course, the whole process must be accompanied by a connected, non-analytical, sustained, mindful presence. So another way of saying this is that a deeply concentrated mind is a purified mind, which opens the heart to wholesome gladness and gratitude with no attachment. This brings the serene pleasure of tranquility, which is the ground for deepening concentration. And on it goes. Consequently, at this point, the mind and the heart are very, very strong. And so in this light, the skill that's being developed is one's ability to resist or deflect is maybe a better term, to deflect the influence of raga. Raga being the Pali word that is literally translated as unwholesome passion. And it's often used synonymously with desire and craving and attachment and clinging. All of which are the core cause of our human suffering. At the time of the Buddha, uh, an analogy that was often used regarding this aspect of the development of the mind was that the effectiveness of a well-thatched roof lies in its ability to deflect moisture and protect the contents of the house from getting soaked. With the analogy being that a well-developed mind will be aware of an unwholesome thought or emotion that has arisen or, or will be aware of a provocative sense input, but will allow these to just roll off the mind and not penetrate into the immediately following mind moments to drench the mind with clinging or to drench the mind with aversion. A similar image often was used 
was uh, that was often used was that of water rolling off a lotus leaf or off the feathers of a duck. I always appreciate uh, how much metaphorical uh, examples are given, were given by the Buddha that were coming directly from nature. So, so much of the Buddha's teaching was directly connected to the natural world. And to me, that was very meaningful. It is, continues to be very meaningful. It keeps us uh, in touch with what's real, who we really are. We are of that nature, the same. The nature of concentration is threefold. Or in other words, there are three types or, or three levels, we could say, of concentration that can develop and serve our insight practice. And the first of these is what's called kanaka samadhi. That's the Pali word, kanaka samadhi or kanaka samatha. And English is momentary concentration. This is the development and the growing maturation of our ability to focus on one object after another. The development of our capacity to mindfully connect with one object, then another object, then another object, then another object, one by one by one, and ongoing moment by moment by moment. The cultivation of one's capacity for momentary concentration, or kanaka samadhi, is essential for insight practice. It's essential for vipassana practice. The second type or the second level we could say of concentration is called upachara samadhi or translated into English access concentration, sometimes called neighborhood concentration. And this is a very deep and powerful concentration that occurs just before one moves into the absorption or the jhana concentration, and it can be re-accessed and used for insight practice, for vipassana practice, upon coming out of the absorption of jhana. Access concentration or neighborhood concentration is often experienced as similar to the intensity and depth of absorption concentration or jhana concentration, but very important, it's not an absorbed concentration, meaning it does not stay focused on one object at the exclusion of other objects, as does jhana. With upachara or access or neighborhood concentration, the mind is very malleable meaning it's able to move from object to object to object, even though it contains close to the same intensity of, of deeply absorbed jhana states. So from this pers perspective, access concentration can be really helpful and very useful in the unfolding of our insight practice. 
The third type or third level of concentration is jhana concentration. And this is a concentrated mind that completely absorbs into one object at the exclusion of all other objects. When the mind is absorbed in this way, it's not possible for the mind to do anything else at that time. With the attainment of each of the first four jhanas, the rupa jhanas, as they're called in Pali, the mind is temporarily, and I repeat, temporarily, totally purified of specific unwholesome mind states in relationship to each of the jhanas. While at the same time, unwholesome states of mind in relation, well, excuse me, while at the same time, unwholesome states of mind are considerably weakened in the long run. Not, not eliminated, not totally eliminated at all, but weakened. It's only through our vipassana practice, it's only through insight practice, that unwholesome or afflictive states of mind are totally eliminated. The development of concentration will quite naturally take place in our vipassana practice, our insight practice, particularly momentary concentration, especially when we begin to meet all of the various body-mind phenomena with less and less clinging, less attachment, less uh, self-identification, but rather with an interested, open-hearted, investigative attitude. The development of jhana and excess concentration takes a very specific and concerted effort that's really not everyone's inclination or everyone's interest and is not absolutely necessary for a potentially liberating vipassana practice, a potentially liberating insight practice to unfold. The achievement of jhana concentration may require many months and even many years of single-pointed practice, meditating for many hours each day. And this certainly may be impractical for some people. For others, it might be possible and worthwhile in moving towards the discoveries that lie for us, wait, lie in wait for us when we apply the telescope of samatha to explore the deep space of the mind. As concentration develops, slowly we gain the wisdom and the confidence to allow ourselves to wholeheartedly meet experience with no self. Wholeheartedly meet experience with no me, no I am. But while at the same time really being clearly present and very mindfully aware of what is actually taking place. But with no pondering, no commentary, no thinking about what is occurring, and, this is important, not making something out of our experience, but rather receiving, sensing, seeing, and knowing experience just as it is. 
In this light, I'd like to share a simple and potentially illuminating story with you about two significant, significant times and aspects of the Buddha's life. After six years of engaging in extreme, austere practices and finding that, in fact, they weren't bringing the liberation of heart, the liberation of mind that he was seeking, it said that the Bodhisattva Siddhartha Gautama, the potential or eventually being the Buddha, asked himself, could there be another path to enlightenment? And in reflection with this inner questioning, the, an image, the memory of a, of a particular experience from his childhood appeared to Siddhartha. He remembered a particular spring day when he was a boy of six. That morning, his father had taken him to the spring plowing festival, a time each year when all of the men in the community, rich and poor alike, came together for a day of plowing up the earth an annual ritual marking the beginning of the spring planting season. Young Siddhartha quite spontaneously and naturally sat up in the meditation posture comfortably and quietly under a sweet smelling rose apple tree. Observing the tree, excuse me, observing the scene unfolding before him with very, uh, this very open, alert and unfettered attention that children sometimes give to things, nothing really on his mind. In those moments of not wanting and not fearing anything, he was aware of the earth breaking open and even wave-like furrows. Noticed the heat, he noticed the heat shimmering up and off the freshly opened soil. He was aware of the shining on the sweating faces and the the straining bodies of the men and the oxen, and he noticed the flashing and the sparkling of sunlight coming off the bronze harnesses and the, the dark horns of the oxen. He felt the plodding rhythm of the oxen's hooves and the cowbells rolling, heard the cowbells rolling on and on and on amidst the strong, sharp shouts of the men as they worked. He also clearly heard the beautiful sound of birdsong, as well as the shrill cries of the birds as they dove and pecked and devoured the swarming insects and the grubs and the worms and the broken bodies of the mice left out on the upturned earth. All of this laboring, devouring, struggling, suffering, and dying, endlessly going on beneath and right along with the gaiety, joy, and beauty of that spring festival day. All of this entered into young Siddhartha's heart and mind as he sat alone, clearly focused and deeply relaxed under the sweet-smelling rose apple tree, open-heartedly experiencing this scene going on before him. And in his mind and heart, finding no resistance, no tension, no inner conflict, nothing to add, nothing to take away. As he silently sat still and secluded from sensual pleasures and unwholesome states of mind, taking all of this in without prejudice, without attachment, and finding himself all alone 
he quite spontaneously and naturally attained a deep state of concentration. It said that it was the first jhana through mindfulness of breathing. Experiencing a bright, sweet pleasure and a joyful happiness that was not born out of desire for or clinging to anything. And in his young mind, a deep intuitive understanding was seated. As a young man, in the midst of practicing extreme austerities of the body, and then remembering this boyhood experience, the thought occurred to Siddhartha. Hmm, could that be the path to enlightenment? It said that following on this memory from his childhood, the Bodhisattva became filled with energy and sureness that this in fact was a footstep. This in fact was a footstep on the path to liberation and resolved then to sit quietly and to press forward in deep meditation until he reached full understanding, until he reached true freedom. This was a turning point for the Buddha to be in his quest for awakening, in his quest for enlightenment. This was a turning point and a change in his relationship to suffering and a change in his evaluation to pleasure, of pleasure. He understood that pleasant experience was no longer to be feared and banished by the practice of extreme austerities. At that most important point of turning in his quest for liberation, Siddhartha realized that the confusion, the misunderstanding, the delusion, the greed, anger, anguish, and hatred, all of the dark and afflictive states of mind wouldn't be, and in fact couldn't be, purified, banished, released, or relinquished by creating hardships for oneself, and then putting up with them, or maybe trying to live through them by stealing oneself, by hardening oneself, and then toughing it out in relationship to these self-inflicted hardships. Or by struggling, by trying really, really hard to let go of the painful mind states related to extreme austere practices. Or by trying to lose one's self in self-created physical and mental hardship. And if you consider your own life, how many times, how many times in small and maybe even tiny ways or even possibly in extreme ways have you, out of ignorance, out of delusion, out of some degree of misunderstanding, been attracted to and chosen to engage in various mental fantasies, various situations, activities, various relationships that created hardship, or maybe a certain flavor of austerity, certain degree and flavor of austerity in your life, and maybe even extreme hardship or austerity. So in your own way, doing just what the Buddha did, 
and thinking just as he did that these situations, these fantasies, activities, or relationships would somehow, somehow bring a sustaining joy, happiness, and ease into your life. Potentially, a certain degree of mental strength is probably gained with this. But the light at the end of the tunnel, so to say, the light of liberation can never be seen, felt, or known with this way. As a young man in remembering his childhood experience, Siddhartha realized that pleasure was no longer to be feared and banished through the practice of extreme austerities, that this would really never bring a sustaining sense of freedom and well-being. He understood that when pleasure is born internally, within a mind, a heart that's secluded, free from mental and bodily hindrances, the mental and bodily hindrances of lethargy and restlessness and greed and clinging, free from the various permutations of aversion and confusion or doubt. He understood that when pleasure is born of seclusion, clear, concentrated, and mindful presence and detachment, that it's not only okay, but that it's a valuable and necessary accompaniment along the path to liberation. And that it in fact points to the sustaining happiness of a heart, of a mind that's no longer run by the energies of greed, clinging, fear, judgment, anger, and confusion. That in fact, it points to the sustaining happiness and ease of a heart, a mind that's liberated, awakened. In remembering his childhood experience, the Bodhisattva Siddhartha came to understand that the development of deep concentration, and for him, jhana, is a footstep, a footstep on the path to awakening, an important and useful footstep on the way to liberation. As the Buddha expressed it to his student Sakaka, this comes from the Majjhima Nikaya. He said, I thought, why am I afraid of that pleasure that has nothing to do with sensual pleasures and unwholesome states? I thought, I'm not afraid of that pleasure since it has nothing to do with sensual pleasures and unwholesome states. And then the Buddha goes on to tell Sakaka that at that point, he made the decision to stop engaging in extreme austere practices. And that very soon after this, he was offered some solid food by a young village girl, and he regained his strength. And then he went and sat in meditation under a Bodhi tree. And then he goes on speaking with Sakaka, saying that being quite, quite secluded from sensual pleasures and unwholesome states, he entered into the deep concentration of the first, the second, the third, and the fourth jhana. And that with each of these pleasurable abidings, and in the Buddha's words now, such pleasant feelings that arose in me did not invade my mind and remain. 
When my concentrated mind was thus purified, bright, unblemished, rid of imperfection, malleable, wieldy, steady, and attained to imperturbability, meaning attained to equanimity. He tells Sakaka that he systematically then attained each of the liberating insight knowledges one by one by one through that now famous night under the Bodhi tree. As a child, this natural state of an undisturbed mind is something that Siddhartha wandered into, so to say. That day with the planting festival. The world outside going on just as it is. Thoughts and feelings arising and changing, coming and going. No different in those moments than anything else in the world. Nothing to agree with, nothing to argue with, nothing to cling to, nothing to push away, nothing to run from. And yet this natural state of an undisturbed mind isn't so easy to wander into for most of us. We so often have a mind made up and often absolutely made up about how it's supposed to be, how it isn't supposed to be, what's good, what's bad, what we absolutely definitely know is true, what we absolutely definitely know isn't true, And we also often have a mind made up about what we must have, what we must not have in order to be happy and even in order to practice meditation. A mind made up. A mind that clings to what it's made up. This is really what prevents us from directly clearly and honestly meeting the moment we're in. It keeps us in conflict. It keeps us shut off from the vastness of possibility. It keeps us shut off from the possibility of wandering into the natural state of an undisturbed mind. This is essentially the cause of our suffering. And what prevents the heart, the mind, from calmly and peacefully connecting directly and clearly with present moment experience, both internal and external experience. As I mentioned earlier in this discussion, the teachings and practices that we've inherited from the Buddha fall into three basic currents the current of Sila the current of samatha, and the current of panya. The teachings and practices of ethical or virtuous conduct, the teachings and practices of concentration, and the teachings and practices of wisdom. These three currents are what carry the Buddha and what carry us along and across the great and often challenging river of life. Carry us to the other side. Carry us to the side of a peaceful, easeful, awakened presence. To the side of 
living life within the natural state of an undisturbed heart and mind. The current of samatha, the development of concentration, possibly, possibly, including states of deeply absorbed concentration, jhana, is a beautiful, healing, and powerful experience in and of itself. And at whatever level one is able to develop a concentrated mind from the perspective of the Buddha Dhamma, it is ultimately and essentially to be used towards our main goal, that of seeing the true nature of existing phenomena, parting the veil, untangling the tangle that keeps us from seeing it, so that we recognize the nature of things, so that we recognize ultimate reality and awaken out of the sleepy cloud of delusion. And again, some words from B. Allen Wallace. The transformative power of Buddhist meditation occurs when the stability and vividness of samatha is unified with the penetrating insights of vipassana. Samatha by itself results in a temporary alleviation of the fundamental causes of suffering. And vipassana by itself provides only fleeting glimpses of reality. So as awakening beings, all of us, here we are today. More than 2,500 years later, after the story about the Buddha at six years old uh, that I shared with you today. And thanks to Siddhartha Gautama's diligent and powerful years of practice, here we are. How amazing. Here we are exploring and learning from his direct experience and the inspired and amazing gift of clarity and his ability to pass it on to others. In closing the talk this evening, or this morning for at least one of you, I just like to say that it is essential that you hold your practice in the light of honesty, humility, and a diligent, open-hearted interest and hold yourself within your practice with deep kindness and patience. Each and all of these wholesome and beautiful human qualities will without a doubt serve the blossoming of sila, samadhi, and panya. And without a doubt are some of the most basic roots and forces of purity that the fruits of our practice stem from. So closing the talk with a, a Mary Oliver poem that speaks to this evening's topic in her quite unique and beautiful way. And in relationship to this evening's topic in a somewhat oblique and yet very moving way. 
and she called this poem such singing in the wild branches. And before I uh, read the poem or offer the poem, I do have to read it, but I, I offer it as well. Um, I encourage each of you to make a shift internally to a spring-like environment as we take in Mary Oliver's poem. For some of you, you are abiding now in a spring-like environment, but some of us aren't. So let's all shift to a spring-like environment in our heart-mind as we take in Mary Oliver's poem, such singing in the wild branches. It was spring. And finally, I heard him among the first leaves. Then I saw him clutching the limb in an island of shade with his red-brown feathers, all trim and neat for the new year. First, I stood still and thought of nothing. Then I began to listen. Then I was filled with gladness, and that's when it happened, when I seemed to float, to be myself a wing, or a tree, and I began to understand what the bird was saying, and the sands in the glass stopped for a pure white moment while gravity sprinkled upward like rain rising. And in fact, it became difficult to tell just what it was that was singing. It was a thrush for sure, but it seemed not a single thrush, but himself and all his brothers and sisters and all the trees around them, as well as the gliding long-tailed clouds in the perfectly blue sky. All, all of them were singing. And of course, yes, so it seemed, so was I. Such soft and solemn and perfect music doesn't last for more than a few moments. It's one of those magical places wise people like to talk about. One of the things they say about it that is true is that once you've been there, you're there forever. Listen, everyone has a chance. Is it spring? Is it morning? Are there trees near you? And does your own soul need comforting? Quick then, open the door and fly on your heavy feet. The song may already be drifting away. And let's sit quietly for just a moment or two.
And thank you for listening to the Dhamma. And as usual, we'll close our Dhamma talk evening chanting the sharing of blessings. What I found over the years with this chant, I learned it. Uh, I'll just give you a quick little story here. Uh, I love this chant. I heard it first from the uh, Amaravati monks many, many years ago. And I liked it so much that I had a recording of them chanting it. And I listened to it in a retreat. I decided I was going to learn it. So I listened to it over and over and over. I don't know how many times until I learned it, the melody of it, because I wanted to be able to offer it and to chant it myself. Um, it fits every single Dhamma talk I've ever offered and every single Dhamma talk I've ever heard from anybody else. It just fits. Of course, it's from the Buddha, so it, of course it fits. What a surprise, huh? Okay. <laughs> All right, let's do it. Through the goodness that arises from my practice, may my spiritual teachers and guides of great virtue, my mother, my father, and my relatives, the sun and the moon, and all virtuous leaders of the world, may the highest gods and evil forces celestial beings, guardian spirits of the earth, and the Lord of death. May those who are friendly, indifferent, or hostile, may all beings receive the blessings of my life. May they soon attain the threefold bliss and realize the deathless through the goodness that arises from my practice. And through this act of sharing, may all desires and attachments quickly cease and all harmful states of mind until I realize Nibbana in every kind of birth. May I have an upright mind with mindfulness and wisdom, austerity and vigor. May the forces of delusion not take hold nor weaken my resolve. The Buddha is my excellent refuge. Unsurpassed is the protection of the Dhamma. The solitary Buddha is my noble guide. The Sangha is my supreme support through the supreme power of all these. May darkness and delusion be dispelled. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.